Oh my god, how many winners did we have for Name the 80s tune? Well, when you pick a f***ing Van Halen song, what do you expect? <laughs> Hey gang, Brad here, and I just want to tell you that now may be your last chance to book the vacation of a lifetime, spending a week with 3,000 other crazy 80s fans on the 80s cruise. Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas leaves Miami on March 8, 2020 for seven glorious Caribbean days, with stops in San Juan, St. Thomas, Punta Cana, and Labadee. But the real fun comes from performances by the B-52s, Brett Michaels, Berlin, Loverboy, Grandmaster Flash, Tony Hadley of Spandau Ballet, Tony Lewis of the Outfield, Patti Smith and Scandal, Lita Ford, Asia featuring John Payne, Midnight Star, The Jets, The Motels, Big Country, Katrina from Katrina and the Waves, Annabella from Bow Wow Wow, Dire Straits, Legacy, and everybody's favorite tribute band, Jesse's Girl. Along with them are the original MTV VJs, Mark Goodman, Nina Blackwood, and Alan Hunter. And new this year, Larry the Duck from Sirius XM's First Wave Station. Plus, we have a special bonus for Stuck in the 80s listeners. If you book with the promo code STUCK, that's S-T-U-C-K, like I'm stuck having a great time with 3,000 people in the Caribbean, you get $200 cabin credit. But don't wait. There's only one cabin category left. Find out more at www.the80scruise.com. Now, on with the show. Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> and the technology. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in L.A. And today we celebrate three albums having their 30th birthday this year. You say it's your birthday. It's my birthday, too. Don't mean that, okay? Steve, Stuck in the 80s, is still a member of the CLNS Podcast Network. You can find our podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and the CLNS Media Mobile app. And get this, in addition to all that, now you can just go to Google, type in Stuck in the 80s, and the results include links to listen to our show. How cool is that? That's new. I didn't know about that. If that doesn't work, just listen to our podcast at the CLNS Media website. You can find it at clnsmedia.com. And as always, if you love the show, share the links on social media, and don't forget to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Steve, joining us today, a man who can not only spell CONCACAF, he actually knows what it means. It's Fox Sports soccer analyst and former U.S. international soccer player, Alexi Lawless. Oh my goodness, this is incredible. This is like um, the uh, the tour backstage of Willy Wonka. I get to see how the sausage is made. It is an absolute privilege and an honor to be on this show with you, uh, with you gentlemen. I have followed from afar for a number of years. I am a full-fledged type of uh, fan. As you guys know, being in the podcast uh, industry, ritual uh, and consistency are huge. And so therefore, your ability to consistently put out quality product, especially for those of us that that build it around our uh, exercise regimen, (laughs) is wonderful. And when I hear you guys do the intro and when I hear all this kind of stuff that over the years I've heard, it makes me so happy to be able to to sit in and and kind of uh, be a part of it right now because I picture myself on these different runs and bikes and stuff like that when you have been the soundtrack to the things that I have been doing from a physical uh, exertion type of perspective. So thank you so much for having me. Wow. You know, I will just say it is exactly like Willy Wonka backstage, except that river is not chocolate. (laughs) Not chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) 
Alexi, how did you stumble across this humble podcast that Steve Spears started low these many years ago? I was I was thinking about it, and uh, you know I, w- I was there before you were around, Brad, and listening. And you know, obviously, this is something that that deals with uh, you know an era and a time that I was a huge part of. I was born in 1970, and so um, it you know so the 80s were a huge part of of my life and have come in many ways to not necessarily define, but I think you would agree, uh, inform a lot of the stuff that happens. And so I was looking for different things that, that I could relate to, that appealed to me, that spoke to me. And as is often the case, you, you, you Google something, and I think uh, that's what happened, and it came up, and I've been a, uh, a fan ever since. First time, long time, if you will, right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great because I mean, obviously, we grew up, you know, watching you play, and uh, you know, in the, the last several years, watching you on TV, and just hard for us to even conceive that you know this guy, this handsome guy on television, not only listens to our podcast, but if I ask you a question on social media, like what's your favorite soccer movie from the eighties, you answer it right away. You stop whatever you're doing and you answer the question. You know, is it Gregory's Girl or is it Victory? <laughs> Well, you know, there are certain people that cut through the clutter, uh, and certainly when I get a question from you, it goes right to the top of the list. I get a lot of questions every day from a lot of people and a lot of comments and, and opinions out there from everybody, but you know, this is, this is near and dear to my heart, whether it's the music of this era, whether it's the movies, whether it's the pop culture type of stuff, and, uh, and the way that you guys uh, do it and have done it for so many years is a credit to the, the professionals that you are, and I know it's in a labor of love type of situation, but the professionals that you are and the way that you bring a heart to it and a passion to it, I think that's really what gets everybody because, you know, the 80s types of things that we talk about are all fine and well, but getting to know the personalities and going through all of your trials and tribulations and, and living through you and relating to you and in the good times and the bad times, all of that kind of stuff. And whether it's relationships or jobs or, or just things that are happening in life, you bring a real humanity to the podcast that I think would work regardless of what era and time frame you were talking about and that it is in a time frame that I know and love um, makes it just that much better. But ultimately, it's about the people and it's about those stories that you guys are telling and, and the way that you relate to it. Whether, whether I can necessarily agree or not or whether I can connect with it from a, you know 80s standpoint in terms of stuff that I listen to or stuff that I watch, it doesn't really matter. You, you have oftentimes made me go rediscover things or discover things or appreciate things in a different way, stuff that maybe at the moment, and certainly back in the 80s, I didn't. And so that's a credit to the, uh, the work that you guys are doing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Gosh. So how's your summer been? Um, were you in Paris? Am I making that up? <laughs> yeah. So for, for, the, for your listeners out there that, that don't know who I am, I am a, a former soccer player, and now I am a, uh, a, a talking head, if you will, a pundit, if you will, on Fox for soccer. So if there's soccer out there, there's a good chance, and it's on Fox, that, that I'm talking about, including the World Cup this summer, the Women's World Cup this summer, last summer in Russia for the Men's World Cup. Um, this summer was wonderful for a number of different reasons, not the least of which was I got to live this incredible Groundhog Day uh, existence in in Paris and go to work at the Eiffel Tower and then also see our incredible women's national team win yet another World Cup. And it's, I, I am incredibly blessed and privileged to be able to do what I do. I retired a long time ago. Uh, and uh, while I played back in the 1900s, uh, I am still <laughs> able to make a living in this game, even though I don't kick the ball anymore. And it's, it's, it's an incredible privilege. And as I said, a, a pleasure. And they can take it from my cold, dead hands as far as I'm concerned. So I want to keep doing this as long as I possibly can. Let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, things took what we would consider to be unexpected turns in Paris in terms of the game and the women's team turning into that political quagmire that it became. Did you see that coming? Could you have predicted that was coming? Or was that a surprise to you? Well, in the sense that we, uh, from, a, from a U.S. women's national team perspective, have a group of incredibly strong, opinionated and talented, articulate women, that would, it would not surprise me that these types of things happen. And if you look at someone like Megan Rapino or something, this was not something that just all of a sudden happened in the summer. So uh, we knew that we were going to get moments that were going to resonate beyond the actual soccer audience and certainly beyond the actual sports audience. And 
you know, when you when you go up and you're you're tweeting back and forth with the president and all that kind of stuff, good, bad, or or anywhere in between, it's always going to resonate. The thirteen nothing game that, if you remember, the U.S. women beat Thailand thirteen nothing. There was actually mana from heaven, as far as we were concerned, from a content perspective, to be able to talk about that because not a whole lot was going on in the tournament, and that they won wasn't a surprise. But how they won, and then the the debate about whether the celebrations were appropriate, and do you dance when you're crushing an opponent, and all this kind of stuff. It was it was wonderful. And this is what, from my perspective on television, what we want. We want to be able to talk about these things. It's not just about the winning. It's all the stories surrounding the field on and off uh, that, are, that are going on. So it was, it was great from start to finish. And it's a World Cup is a, a, almost a, a lifeline. It starts, uh, it continues on, it, it peaks at certain different points, and then it, then it ends. Sometimes it ends when you don't want it. Sometimes it ends in the, in the greatest way ever. And we're this, you know, I'm just, as I said, really privileged to be able to document it with all of the, the Fox folks, all the incredible women and men that I was working with this summer in front of the camera and behind the camera. It was, uh, it was fun, you know, but you will know, uh, and you should know that throughout it all, I was still downloading my podcasts and going running along the Seine. And so your voices, your dulcet tones were in my ears as I was running along the Seine, uh, in that incredible environment, getting ready to do my work. You guys would have been asleep at the time that I was running around, <laughs> but, uh, the, the podcast continue on because man or woman cannot live on soccer alone. And so I needed my fix and thank God you were continuing to uh, give that type of uh, fix to me. We give all we can for our country, Alexi. Yeah. <laughs> America. Absolutely. I have to ask you this because I, and I've, I've wanted to ask you this for a long time, and, I know, and I'm sure you've answered this question before. Mm-hmm. But I get a chance to ask it to you personally, so it means more to me. You seem to relish, in a way, your detractors. I mean, they, people go out of their way to tell you sometimes how bad they think you are <laughs> at your commentary. Or, or how much they, or I wouldn't say bad at your commentary, but how much they disagree how with you. How much they disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you sort of embrace that, which I think is the best way of doing it. But I'm just curious. I mean, has that been your strategy all along? Are you still surprised? Or does it just kind of make you laugh? Look, it makes me laugh. I get this question all the time, honestly, if I'm talking about soccer or if I'm doing more mainstream type of uh, interviews or podcasts or anything like that. I get this question all the time. And I think a lot of it is based off the reactions that I have and the things that I say from a social media perspective. And look, we, we know that while social media in its, in its best form can be uh, something that's helpful, it can be a type of focus group to a certain extent. We also know the ills and the problems that, that, that arises. And the, at times, the problem when it comes to thinking that it is the way the world thinks. And we know that that's not the, the case. Having said that, um, y- yes, I go, <laughs> I maybe go out of my way. I, I, I come at it with a real punk ethos in that uh, I grew up considering myself a performer and, and an entertainer. I, I was in the entertainment industry when I was a soccer player, and I continue to be in the entertainment industry now on television. When you say that, sometimes people cringe uh, because they think that you don't take what you do seriously or that it's not genuine or truthful or authentic in the way that you're going about your business. And that's not the case at all. I just recognize that I am practicing something, uh, rehearsing something, whatever you want to call it, then I'm going up on stage in front of people and people are going to have opinions about the things that you say. And yes, you do have to have a very thin skin. Uh, I, I enjoy as much being in front of 100,000 people that are spitting and throwing stuff at me and chanting horrible things about me as I do going up and having 100,000 people screaming and yelling and telling you how great you are. I just want that reaction and I enjoy that reaction. And I do look at Twitter as combative. And maybe that's not healthy and maybe that's not right, but that's it's a video game almost to me in the back and forth that we have. Once again, it doesn't mean that I'm not being truthful when I'm talking to people, but there's no way that I can know you guys simply from listening to your podcast or even just recording the podcast with you today in the same way that there's no way that anybody can truly know who who I am just from going on Twitter or or, or seeing me up on television talking about soccer and yet Time and time again, <laughs> these judgments uh, these judgments are made, and some of them are are legitimate, some of them aren 't but it 's part of my life. I am maybe masochistic to that to to a certain extent, <laughs> and maybe that 's a problem in that i it hurts so good and i and I enjoy it, but bring it on and let's let 's go <laughs> oh man that 's everything I wanted from that answer that 's fantastic 
Today we're not going to be talking about soccer. We're going to be talking about music. We're going to be talking about music that is 30 years old. So we'll be talking about albums that were released in 1989. Now, 1989 is a weird year uh, for Brad and I. We were kind of maybe trying to to leave the friendly confines of the 80s. Maybe we had tired a little bit of what we were hearing on the radio. At least I think I was. Um, Alexi, you would have been, if you're three years younger than us, you would have probably just been starting college in 1989? Yeah, I would have been in my first year of college. Uh, when the year changed into 1989, January 1st of 1989, I would have been 18 years old in my first year of college at a college uh, university in uh, New Jersey called Rutgers University. Exit nine off the turnpike for those that know it. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, but I uh, went to school out in uh, New Jersey. It was the only place that I got into, and uh, I had never been to Rutgers University. I had never been to New Jersey. It w- I did everything wrong in terms of how they tell you to pick a school, <laughs> in terms of uh, knowing where you're going and doing the research and talking. It was literally the only place that I got in that would have me. I went to a very small prep school in Detroit, and Rutgers was, it, for those that don't know, Rutgers is the, basically New Jersey State. is the state school of New Jersey, and it was 30,000 people, and it was a uh, real culture shock. It would have been a wonderful 80s plot type of movie of uh, fish out of water type of thing. But in 1989, so if you're starting college and you're from Detroit, so Detroit's got that deep history in rock and roll. Now you're moving to New Jersey, which has its own unique sound. It must have been a, a unique mix of music going around, swirling around your head about that time. Yeah, so as I said, I grew up in Detroit and I grew up in the 80s. And, you know, my first concert ever was Pat Benatar, the Crimes of Passion tour. Would have, I would have been around 12 years old at Pine Knob Music Theater outside of Detroit. So I grew up knee deep in the 80s MTV generation uh, and influenced by all of that different stuff. But I also was heavily in, into the whole metal glam, hair, whatever you want to call it type of 80s. But one moment I would, be, I would be listening to Rat, and then the next moment I would be listening to Till Tuesday or something like that. So it was all over the spectrum and the mat, and you know whether it was Styx and Warrant and Neil Young, and, and then obviously classic rock that permeated a lot of the airwaves back then. But, uh, so, but then going to New Jersey, and what New Jersey represented from a musical standpoint, whether it was uh, Bruce Springsteen, but also Bon Jovi, who at the time was was huge and meant so much to me growing up in terms of the music that I liked. I wanted to see what New Jersey was all about. And you know, I played in a bunch of different bands and we would play all over New Jersey and then go into the city and play all over the city and do all that. But I was knee deep in what I thought was from an East Coast standpoint, because obviously it wasn't the L.A. scene, but from an East Coast standpoint, what was going on uh, in terms of music out there, especially when it came to the hard rock, metal, glam, uh, hair, whatever you want to call that type of uh, genre. Cool. Let's get started. We're each going to represent one album today. We're not saying these are the best albums of, the, of 1989. We're just saying these are the ones that we personally connected with. Brad, get started. What's the uh, album from 1989 that you're representing today? Okay, guys, I think that this choice is going to tell you a lot about my mental state in 1989. I give you The Cure's Disintegration. That was Love Song, the closest thing I could find to a radio cut on Disintegration, and the Cure's highest charting single in the United States, if you can believe that. For the band ever? No. Yeah, yeah. It stalled out at number two, Steve, which means in the 1989 show of songs that got stuck at number two, we'll get to talk about it again, so I shouldn't say too much now, so we have some content for later. Uh, (laughs) So this is the Cure's ninth studio album. Released on May 2nd, 1989, just a week before my birthday. How thoughtful of them. It's a follow-up to 87's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which was a huge double album, followed by a massive tour, just launched the cure into the stratosphere. And this album is kind of a reaction to that success. Robert Smith was really uncomfortable with being super famous and 
the trappings of fame and playing to big stadiums. And it just was, for whatever reason, it was really troubling to him. And he felt like, you know, the cure is totally misunderstood. And so he wanted to take the band back to a darker place with their next record. And I think they succeeded here, boys and girls. Brad, have you ever seen them perform live? I have. Not that long ago. I saw them uh, two, three years ago now, maybe. My son and I went and saw them at the Hollywood Bowl, and it was amazing. Robert Smith doesn't look any more comfortable today in front of the audience than he did 30 years ago. No, he looks like he hasn't missed any meals either. Um, But he sounds great. He sounds great. He does not engage with the audience at all. He just plays his music. And then when it's time for them to take a break, he just unplugs and walks off stage. But they played a nice long set. They played everything I wanted to hear, uh, everything my son wanted to hear. So it it was really cool to see them and see them in good form. But it was like doubly nice to see them with my son. That was kind of a cool evening for both of us, I think. Alexi, have you seen them uh, in concert? I have not seen them in concert uh, live. I've, I've obviously seen them plenty of times and recently. And my question is, does Robert Smith's uh, aesthetic now, does it, is it distracting? Because when I see it, and, and you know, it, it, back in the time, it was part of the time and everything like that. And it was, I think it just, it played a whole lot better. And yet now, now when I see it, it, to me, it's incredibly distracting, and, and maybe that just makes me old. But do you think that it's part of the whole thing, and that he's that we are that we should be laughing with him as opposed to to laughing at him? Not that I'm necessarily laughing at him, but when when you saw it in concert, you know the the way that he is he is aged. It, it is not. It could have been gracefully, and yet the way right. that he looks on stage, it seems like he's trying to do the exact same thing that he was doing 30, 30 years ago, and it's very, very difficult for anybody to be able to do that. Yeah, so, says the guy who cut off all of his awesome red hair. Um, <laughs> I will say I, it didn't really distract me too much, Alexi, but that may have been because our seats were way back there, so I didn't have a really good look at him. It is a little strange. I mean, you know, Props to you, Robert Smith, for staying the course, but I didn't find it distracting. I don't know. I I saw a performance that they recently did that was filmed, and I think it was in the UK. Was it Glastonbury? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So you got to see him up close, and I I see what Alexi is saying. When you you see him up close and you see Robert Smith 30 years later, and he he looks somewhat like – he looks like he's someone on the 80s cruise pretending to dress up as Robert Smith – from 1989. <laughs> Bingo. There you go. He's become a bad Robert Smith impersonator. Yeah, but 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 does that did he study, does he still sound as great of course, but uh, it's it is one of those things I should say. Just like Brett Michaels is trying to always look like he did in the 80s and yeah. you know. Yep. Yeah. So the thing I always liked about The Cure is I felt like they were a lot more guitar driven than a lot of the, you know, what we kind of condescendingly call the Euro trash mopey sound music i felt like there was something going on there instead of just you know guys pushing buttons on their sequencers and playing with their moog in the garage so i i I always like that part of the cure and i think that's here in this album but i also think it's the sound is so layered with synthesizers so you kind of get both sides of it you know when you listen to the first track on this album it starts out with this kind of clanging like wind chimey noise and then it just this wall of synthesizers just comes at you it sets the tone for the whole album So do you have a deeper cut from this album that you really enjoy? I do, and I enjoy it because it is so sad, Steve. My deeper cut from this album is The Same Deep Water As You. Thank you. 
never really thought about until last night as I was sitting in my home alone listening to this on headphones on the couch. Just just how emo I am for liking <laughs> this. But it's like the song reached out and just grabbed me and pulled me back to 1989 at a time where I was, you know, I just I just graduated from college and, you know, gosh, all those aerospace jobs that I thought were going to be here waiting for me, they've all gone away and I'm working this shitty manufacturing job and I'm making like, you know, 25K a year with a week of vacation and it just, oh, it's like, oh my God, am I really going to have to do this for 40 years? It just life was just crushing me down. All the good things that have happened to me in my life, I guess, started in the 90s. Maybe I should start the Stuck in the 90s podcast. No. But you're listening to them where you're, you're – it's just being confirmed, right? I mean, he, Robert Smith and the Cure, are, they're not helping you get out of this this. No. Abyss, right? Oh, no, no. I'm just, I'm just going down into it and just wallowing in it. I'm just like soaking okay. in it, right? <laughs> okay, I'm just like, it. let me put on my hair shirt you know, and feel the, the – the torture of this life like oh there's nothing i can do about this oh uh. i mean it was bad do you remember how like in the 70s we, 60s and 70s like every tv show used quicksand as some sort of weird metaphor and i, I grew up thinking that we were all like 50 percent likely to die from from quicksand to, to me <laughs> to me the cure is like the quicksand of of depression. <laughs> I mean, oh, I like that metaphor. You, That's good. You step in it. You're not stepping out. It's and the more you struggle, the more the cure is going to pull you in. And that's why you just lay there and let it soak over you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't in. know. It, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this last night again. Um, Steve, I think you'd say I'm a generally an optimistic person. Yes, you know? I, yes. I, I tend to see the positive in life, and yet listening to this music, I'm like. That was not where I was at in 1989. <laughs> I was like, everything I was promised is fake. This is bullshit. Why was I in such a hurry to get out of college? It was great. So I have to mention one quick Robert Smith story. They were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. And yeah. we'll leave our discussion about whether that uh, institution should exist for another time. But as he came onto the kind of red carpet for the induction ceremony, an interviewer basically sticks a mic in his face. Hey, how are you? I'm Carrie. It's so nice to meet you. Hi. Congratulations, The Cure Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees 2019. Are you as excited as I am? Um, by the sounds of it, no. Oh, no. <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, I'm sure we'll get there eventually. It's a bit early, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it, I guess it is. Maybe we just need a few drinks. God forbid. <laughs> It was a great clip. This great moment. Hey, how you doing? And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's got to suck, though. I mean, Alexi, you've had that problem, too. I mean, obviously, you've done interviews with people where you're like, this person, I couldn't raise the pulse on this person if I tried. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not putting myself in the echelon of, of Robert Smith or The Cure by any stretch of the imagination, but I've always just felt that, look, if the if the worst thing in, in your life is that somebody wants to come up and talk to you about something and or ask for an autograph or have a picture or, in this case, pose a question in an actual environment where you're supposed to be answering questions, that, you know, they're going to base their their view on who you are in those 15 seconds. It might not be right. It might not be fair. You might be having a good day, a bad day, all that kind of stuff. But I'd rather go through life having as many people have that 15 seconds be a positive experience <laughs> as, as possible. And, and look, by, I was a funny clip. And he, he wasn't being a dick or anything like that. No, he, he, he was being it was, it was, yeah. I mean, he played it straight and it was wonderful. It was, uh, it was a wonderful deadpan uh, type of reaction. But, you know, you just went into the Hall of Fame. And maybe that, maybe it was perfect Cureness, I guess, if that's even a word, in the way that he reacted, because they have, while I will argue that they are some of the best pop song writers out there, even though they have tried not to, they certainly have, have tried to position themselves over the years as outside of the mainstream, and maybe, maybe rightfully so, maybe that's worked to their, uh, to their advantage. So are you saying that she was the disease and they were the cure? <laughs> there you go. There you go. He's been waiting years for that one. Oh, I'm really happy about that. Oh, Alexi, what uh, album from 1989 are you going to represent today? So, as uh, as most of your listeners will know, you guys have a a history and a penchant for a, a not you're you're very very good at, at kind of being not being everything to everybody, but understanding that there are a lot of different listeners out there. And when it comes to your um, your metal hair metal. 
glam, whatever you want to talk about, there's not a whole lot of that. And so I specifically went for a 1989 release by a band called Skid Row. As I mentioned earlier, I was knee-deep in the hair glam scene and era. It was my thing, and I, and I loved everything about it. And so whether you're talking about Rat or Skid Row or Poison or Warrant or Def Leppard or all of these different, uh, different groups, Cinderella's out there, I ate it up. I was that audience that they were uh, catering to. So Skid Row, as you may or may not know, uh, in 1989 released their debut album, also called Skid Row. And it was not at the very end, because I think people would probably talk about the end of that era in being coming around 92 with the, uh, with the arrival of grunge, but it was certainly starting to, starting to wane. And they came on the scene with this album and uh, for me, it was it was sugar. It was just just injected into my veins for the music that they had, the hooks that they had, the aesthetic that they had, just everything that it was. It was tailor made for MTV, and we know even at that point that was such a huge, huge component of of sales. So in January 1989, uh, they released it. It went five times platinum. Billboard. It went to around I don't know uh, number 36, I think, if I uh, if my research is correct. Most of you out there that don't necessarily follow this genre or this this uh, this band would know the big hits because they they were ubiquitous in 1989 and into 1990, and they. As often is the case with some, of, with some of these era bands, they were the power ballads and we, with I Remember You and uh, 18 in Life. And so, you know, for, for a lot of people, they will, whether they like the band or not, they will have danced at some point to I Remember You, which hit Billboard at number six, and maybe even danced to 18 in Life, which hit Billboard at, uh, at number five. But... It also brings up the question for a lot of these bands in that while so much of their success was part of the the ballad type of uh, existence that they had, and yet they tried to be such hard rockers. Some of them tried. I think in Skid Row, I would argue that they were first and foremost not only a hard rock band, but a really, really good hard uh, rock band. And we saw it in this album, and it continued on after that, because after this album, they got really, really much harder in the way that they went about it. But I think you saw a situation here where they were, they were conflicted to a certain extent. They wanted to sell albums, they wanted to be popular, but that it was being done off of the ballads, I don't think they regretted it, but they were a much harder band than I think the ballads led people to believe. And so when something like Youth Come Wild, which was their first single, came out, as a lot of times what they did is start out with a hard single and then go on to the, uh, to the ballots. But this band, without a doubt, was made by one of the greatest frontmen in rock and roll, and that would be Sebastian Bach. He was everything that you want from a frontman, both in terms of the talent and the way that he looked. You could not take his eyes off of him. He was a beautiful human being. It, regardless of what he was singing or what he was doing, one of the most beautiful human beings you will ever feast your eyes upon, as is uh, clearly evident if you go and watch any of the videos from that time. And they knew it, he knew it, everybody knew it, and that's why he was front and center in each and every promotional type of venture that they had out there. Have you ever had a chance to see him in concert? Yeah, I've seen uh, Skid Row uh, in concert, and I've seen Sebastian Bach, who has gone on to have a long uh, solo career, because of the voice that he had. And so Skid Row was a band from uh, New Jersey. Uh, They had a relationship with Bon Jovi, and when Bon Jovi became big, they brought him along with them. And the missing piece was this lead singer. And Sebastian Bach was a young uh, lead singer from Canada. They brought down, they auditioned, and he immediately fit in. And you could tell right away that, once again, the way that he looked, and more importantly, or maybe as importantly, the way that he sang was something special. And 
I still remember to this day when that album came out because when you're when you're in a band or when you're into music, what you do, you play these you play these cassettes at that point or or CDs if you're getting into CDs and stuff like that. You crank it up and you try to hit the notes that a lot of your idols are hitting. And so from this album and continuing on into the uh, the Skid Row collection, you would sit there and try to hit those notes that uh, Sebastian Bach was hitting. And yeah, a lot of it was really really high, but there was some some real balls to the way that he sang. And I think that's really what made this album, and I think really what made Skid Row, because while there were plenty of good metalish, glamish, rockish type of bands out there, his grit, and you juxtapose it with the way that he looked, and that's what made it perfect, really, really made a lot of these these songs that could have been just kind of mundane uh, 80s rock metal fare into something really, really special. And whether it's the growls at times or the high notes, all that kind of stuff, I think oftentimes he gets overlooked in terms of his ability to sing and what he put down on record for Skid Row. The other point is when you see them live, it's always difficult for them to replicate it. And at times he does it well, at times he hasn't done it well, but that he got this album down and that it's, it's never going to go away, I think it's a wonderful reflection of what this band was at the time and how good they were and especially how good Sebastian Bach was. All right, guys, so also when you talk about the name Skid Row, there's this, this story floating around, and it has yet to be really confirmed because when Sebastian Bach says something, it's not necessarily uh, 100% that it actually happened or not. He's written a book. It's a, it's a funny and interesting memoir out there. But one of the great uh, guitar players of the 60s and 70s, Gary Moore, had a band called Skid Row back in the 60s. And the rumor is that uh, the then-manager, Doc McGee, who is a legend when it comes to a lot of these groups with, with Motley Crue and with Bon Jovi and stuff like that, that Skid Row had to pay $35,000 in order to get the right to use that name. And looking back on it in terms of the amount of money that they had and the success that they had, it was a small price to pay for, uh, for Gary Moore. Don't know if it's, a, if it's right or not, but this is what happened. And then to, just to show you the incestuous type of relationship from New Jersey, which once again, which is where I was knee deep in. I mean, I was, I was in clubs doing covers of these songs, whether it was I Remember You or 18 in Life or Youth Gone Wild in New Jersey, the place where this band was at the exact same time when this album was out. So these were the hits of the day that we were, that we were covering. And that summer, the summer of 1989, if you, if, I don't know if you remember it, but the Moscow Music Peace Festival happened, which included Skid Row. It also included Motley Crue and Cinderella and Bon Jovi and Scorpions and, and, a, and a lot of others out there. And the, the joke about this festival was that Skid Row appeared at was that this was anti-drugs and, and drinking and stuff like that. And yet they put mm. all of these morons on this plane, <laughs> filled it up with drugs and alcohol, and flew them over to Moscow to spread peace, love, and the uh, message of don't do drugs and, and don't drink too much. So there was a lot of debauchery, I'm sure. Some of it we know about, a lot of it that we don't know about it. But they were off to the races. Skid Row, with this album, they opened up for everybody, whether it was... Uh, Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, and a relationship that continues on with Guns N' Roses. So this was, this was huge in terms of establishing them as a big 80s band, but also, I think, establishing them as a rock band that you wanted, that brought people in, especially if you had them opening for it. They went on to headline and do some different stuff. So if you could script out a debut type of album, this is the way that you wanted to go because you had, you had the hits, you had the sales. Uh, I think you lived up, at least for the most part, to what you wanted to be from a musical sense, uh, and they were off to the races. Now, the races didn't last very long for Skid Row, but once again, this was, uh, this was a hell of a debut from the, uh, from the band. So, Steve, uh, confession, or maybe it's a confession for you, Alexi. I'd never heard this album until the other day when we started getting prepped for the show. And I have to say, I liked it more than I thought I was going to. It's well-established. You were very kind in the way you said this, but this is just not our genre, really, uh, which is why we need people to come help us with this stuff. But I'm like, okay, yeah, well, you know, these guys can play their instruments. They sound good. 
Uh, I recognized way more of the songs than I thought I would, like you said. Whether you like them or not, whether you own the album or not, you heard this music. Steve, are you at all familiar with this album? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a five times platinum album. I I remember it at the time. I mean, I mean, I was even though I was into new wave and alternative, like my friends were still, you know, suburban dirt balls and. Uh, you know, listening to this, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Tampa Bay, so this this stuff was like required listening. And to this day, whenever whenever one of our podcast fans suggests uh, a hair metal album or something new, like D. Snyder's new album, or uh, man, what was the other one that came out recently that we did a feature on? I can't remember. Dave Augie August would know, but I, I always listen to them. And I'm always surprised how much I I, I can connect with them, I, and I don't know why I don't give them more of a benefit of the doubt than I do. I guess it was just my friends at the time. You know, the, the peer pressure of you can't like Skid Row and Spando Ballet. You just can't do it. <laughs> you have to. Sure, choose. you can. Come on, man. Well, Why'd you succumb to the pressure? Well, we know that's that what now. They do. Now we know that. <laughs> oh my god! When you guys asked me to do this, I put together a bunch of different '89 albums you yeah. know, for the 30th anniversary, and so I had my. My metal side, which was Skid Row, Dr. Feelgood, Dirty Rotten, Filthy Stinkin' Rich from Warrant, and the Colt Sonic Temple. On the other side was Tom Petty, Full Moon Fever, Don Henley, The End of the, End of the Innocence, Madonna Like a Prayer, and, and Indigo Girls. I mean, while I was getting, you know, geeking out over the Skid Row album, I was also going to Indigo Girls shows, and I remember being at a Don Henley show in Minnesota. So my, I was all, all over the map, and uh, they all resonated in, in different ways, but they all resonated and you know that was I don't know I think that comes from from kind of being a, a, a soccer person which wasn't I hate to break it to you it wasn't necessarily always cool growing up what? in the uh, 70s and 80s and being a being a soccer person so you kind of just got to a point where you just said screw it I'm just going to do what I want and uh, it doesn't matter what any anybody thinks but for anybody that and I'm glad that we got some of this uh, on your show because I think it does have a huge huge part in the uh, genre that we're talking about and in the era that we're talking about or that you talk about each and every week. But my palette was all over the place uh, at times when we were talking about music at that point, even at that specific point. Yeah, I was surprised to see Madonna on your list. Madonna is awesome, and I will fight anybody that says anything <laughs> to the contrary. I think Jen with one N would like to you know, have a, a quiz off with you as to who gets to defend Madonna. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> we had to leave that one for her. Which brings up who I'm going to defend. And as much as we've ignored, for better or for worse, as much as we have ignored the, the hair metal scene on Stuck in the 80s, there's another artist that we've ignored just as much because we keep getting this informal feedback that there's nobody out there in Stuck in the 80s Nation who ever wants to hear a show about this guy. And so obviously I'm talking about Billy Joel and his 1989 album, Stormfront. I don't know what it is that Stuck in the 80s Nation has against Billy Joel. Does anyone here have a theory on it? Because I don't. I don't understand. Um, you know, let me just, uh, again, I listened to this album, I think, for the first time last night. And I was, once again, I was surprised at how much I liked it. If we take away a certain song that we'll talk about more in a moment. <laughs> the one we just played. Yes. It's, that song is lazy songwriting. It's terrible. But if you take that out, the rest of the album is really quite good. It's, it's very listenable. He has a great voice. He's a great songwriter. I'm not sure what the beef is. It's not it's not lazy songwriting. It's just horrifically overplayed. It's just a name check song. It's lazy. It's uh, it's like, oh, let me go see what's on the front page of the newspaper for the last eight years. Okay, I'll write a song about the top the headline. Years. The, the, song, the song spans from the end of the World War II, when he was born. It's an example. All the way up to 1989. It's not meant to be factual. <sighs> I stand by my statement. It's lazy. Uh, it's not like Alexi, Alexi, is this a lazy, is it lazy? song? <laughs> Brad, you ignorant slut. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? Oh, I dare. Billy Joel is a national treasure. This album, and including that song, that song is not lazy. That song is the height 
of songwriting prowess. This is a man who is at the top of his game, who understands what the public want and is able to give that to them so that they don't even have to move. All they have to do is tip their head back, open their mouth, and let Billy Joel pour it in. And that's what he does. And there is nothing, my friend, nay, absolutely nothing that is lazy about that songwriting. It is a gift from the songwriting gods, and he is the conduit giving it to us. And we should be thankful from start to finish that we exist in a world where we were able to not just hear it, but open up our mouths and digest it. (laughs) I I don't know if I have the energy to argue with you after that impassioned response. You're still wrong. It's like this song brought to you by Newsweek magazine. Oh, come on, Brad. Open your heart a little bit. Uh, Sorry, I'm still in Cure Town. (laughs) Uh, Can anyone even guess how many uh, albums Billy Joel had in the 80s? I mean, you don't think of him maybe as being that prolific that decade, but just guess. Anyone guess? Six? I remember coming home with glass houses, and that was, what, early 80s and stuff like that. And so that's when I first understood and got into Billy Joel and then went back and got his other catalog. But I don't know, what, five, four, three? I don't know, four? Five. Glass Houses, Nylon Curtain, Innocent Man, The Bridge, and Stormfront. So he would only do one more pop rock album after Stormfront. Uh, That was 1993's River of Dreams. So go figure. This album has uh, three songs that were covered also by uh, artists in the near future. Uh, Obviously, Garth Brooks, Recorded Shameless in 91. Paul Anka <laughs> covered I Go to Extremes. <laughs> That's a great song, by the way. It is a great song. Go to Extremes is an awesome song. I, I love that song. I'll, I'll listen to that over and over. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, um, I was thinking about that song earlier today. I was, I was listening to it. It is a cry for help. It is, is obviously a man who's suffering with a little bit of manic depression and trying to explain himself to the people around him and can't quite do it. It's, it's, it's one of those genius songs if you ever see him in concert. If he, I mean, he always plays that song. It's fantastic live. You guys, can I just ask you something with, with regards to these, these confessional type of songs and, and seeing more into the lyrics and stuff like that? Because last night I saw Rocketman for the first time. And oh. I, think, I, I, think, I, I think the 80s in particular and specifically doesn't lend itself to being able to look at the songs in a way that are cathartic and that are storytelling in the way that other decades do. And I think that has to do with the production. I think it just has to do with the, maybe the, the, either the real or the perceived superficiality of that, of that entire decade. But I think it's really hard to look at any artist, you know, maybe, maybe there's a couple of them that, that transcend it, that wrote a song from a real pure and genuine place of either pain or pathos or whatever it ends up being and kind of look at it and say, yeah, this, this person was feeling it. Because, I don't know, maybe if you, just, if you put synthesizer on anything, it automatically uh, means that, that it can't be authentic. And I think that part of the production of this album lessens the dramatic effect that it might have had had it been recorded 10 years later or, or 10 years earlier. 10 years earlier, I think you would have done better. I go to extreme, you know, it's a personal apology to, to his wife at that time, Christy Brinkley. They would divorce five years later. The song, And So It Goes, was written in, I think, 83, but didn't appear on any of his uh, work until 89. He wrote that song about uh, his uh, doomed relationship with Ella McPherson. Wow, really? The original Uptown Girl. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's a beautiful song, man. Oh, man. Jeez. Well, what a great closer for an album. Yeah. So unique, though, because uh, I found this out today. Uh, written in iambic tetrometer, just like uh, the Elizabethan poet Christopher Marlowe. So it's poetic verse that consists of four metric feet um, with an unstressed syllable always followed by a stressed one. And so when you listen to it now, you, can, you hear that pacing intentionally done. Huh. Wow. So tortured song. I remember uh, when I saw him live the last time, which was probably about 15 years ago, he, and I think he still does this this bit. He's got that, that long series of shows now at, at Madison Square Garden where you know the, the set list changes from night to night a little bit, but there's always seemingly a moment where he gives the audience a choice between you want me to play 
Big Shot or do you want me to play something else? And I remember the night that I saw him, it was a choice between like a 70s song and And So It Goes. And the crowd went crazy for And So It Goes, so he played it. And I just felt bad for the guy because it's like here's this song where he basically is just – I mean, he's he's ripped his heart out. He's put it on the floor. And now he's stomping on it while he's playing a guitar, while he's playing a piano, and he's got to do that like night after night after night. It'd be it'd like me, like me telling a story of a doomed relationship, night at, podcast after podcast after podcast. Let me stop you right there. Here's the thing: you're looking at it from your perspective. He is a performer. Remember what Alexi told us about performers? He wants that energy. He needs that energy. That's true. Who's more tortured, Billy Joel or Robert Smith? Billy Joel. I'd have to agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Robert just goes home and says, ah, take off this makeup. Everything's fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> comb your hair back to yeah. normal yeah. Uh, man bun yeah, and everything's just, good for the rest of the night. He puts on a baseball cap, goes out in the backyard, it's he toasts his tomatoes. Maybe he restrings <laughs> yeah, a guitar. I can totally see that. The album's also known for the song Leningrad which became a big thing for Billy when he was touring the Soviet Union in 1987. The song is about a circus clown that he'd heard about, and the song details his life growing up versus the circus clown, you know, uh, in America versus, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. And, of course, the big twist in fate, obviously, in real life was they did actually meet up on that tour. In fact, the clown, whose name was, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this, Victor Razanov, actually went to every single one of Joel's shows in the Soviet Union and then back in 2015 Victor traveled all the way to New York to catch one of Billy's uh, concerts at Madison Square Garden and and for the reunion uh, Billy played Leningrad to the show that night which he which he rarely does anymore So my child and I came to this place to meet him Brad, I have a question uh, about Love Song, uh, because it, when I was listening to this in preparation of the show, I was listening to that song. And What is a better song, Under the Milky Way from the Church or Love Song from the Cure? Because for me, they're almost the exact same th- song, and if, if I'm correct, I think the Church was uh, a year ahead of it. Uh, you, you just reach, you reach right into my soul. Under the Milky Way is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's in the same key, too. And I couldn't help but when I was listening to Love Song, I said, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. Uh, well, now I'm going to have to go listen to those back-to-back, but I would pick The Churches Under the Milky Way any day of the week. That, that's another one of those kind of you're soaking in it, life sucks songs. Yep. Okay. I was just curious because I couldn't help thinking of them. And I did exactly what you're about to do, which is go and put them both on. And it's, it's pretty amazing how much, how much they line up. Huh. Cool. You know what I like to soak in when life sucks? The Seggies. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. Uh, You know the drill here. We will play a snippet of a movie from the 80s. If you get it right, you are entered into the drawing for some swag. I believe the swag is still bottle openers. Bottle openers? Eminently mailable flat bottle openers. Emblazoned with the stuck in the 80s logo. Pay attention. Here was our clue from episode 514. The only thing better than a glass of beer is tea with Miss McGill. (laughs) Yeah, that's Youngblood, the hockey movie with Rob Lowe. Wait, Alexi, didn't you play hockey? I did play hockey. How the hell did you play hockey and and be a soccer player? Because I grew up in Detroit, man. It's the law. (laughs) Do you remember this movie? Do I remember this movie? Oh my God! Yeah, if you're if you were into hockey or anything else, I mean, yeah, of course I remember it. Rob Lowe, Keanu Reeves, oh my God, Patrick Swayze. Yeah, it was yeah, it was a incredible movie. I loved it. Oh, yeah. so good. You used to have it on DVD. I keep it's one of those movies I keep buying on DVD and then I lend it out and I never get it back. I think I'm single handedly supporting the the annual <laughs> sales for this movie. 
I'd probably, I'd probably <laughs> buy four copies. So, uh, Brad, read some of the winners. Winners this week include Brock in North Dakota, Jeff in Richlands, Virginia, John Ross from Charlotte, North Carolina, Kevin Torque Wench, Jason in St. Louis, Mark Graham, Mr. Whiskey, Alejandro Sticks Cardoso Solis from Tijuana, Mexico, Lou Sweet Lou Grilly, Dr. D in St. Joseph, Missouri, Dave Cedillo in Old OP, and our old friend Bass Note. Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. What's the plan? <laughs> I drowned and you told me back to the rig. No. No. If you know it, email us at podcast at SITAs.com and tune in in a couple weeks and find out if you're a winner. Ah, the mystical refrain that is named that 80s tune. Uh, again, a drill is at hand. <laughs> you know it. Uh, we will play a song. We will play a song from the 80s or late 70s, maybe. And uh, if you get it right, Brad will read your name breathlessly in this case today. Oh Pay God. attention. Here's the uh, mystery clip from uh, episode 514. That's Ain't Talking About Love by Van Halen. Okay, the song is from 1978. For some reason, in my head, the trouble is I've, I've, I've listened to two Van Halen memoir audiobooks in the last month, and then at work, I'll sit there and watch Van Halen live on YouTube, and so it's kind of been in my brain, and for some reason, I just I had it in my head that this was from a later album, so I meant well. We'll allow it. Okay, Brad. Take a deep breath, or several. <laughs> okay, you guys should go out and have a drink, because it's going to take me a while to get through all these names. It's like, I'm going to be reading the phone book. Here we go. Winners this week include Joseph Perdue, Amy Gossamel, Michael Mockrock Hayes, Charles in Yorktown, VA, Alan Titus, Donnie Metal Rhymes with Gettle, Dave Estel, Kirk from Friendswood, Tommy Doucette in Boston, Eric Berube in St. Thomas, Ontario, Dax in Indiana, Spraggle Rock, Bill with one L, Heather H. from Tennessee, Timmy in Camp Crystal Lake, Illinois, Mark from Middleton, Sean Fitzgerald, Greg in Ohio, Joseph Siski, Pensacola Jim, Tom Canine in Northwest Washington, Hermit Jack, David Wilson, John Demacus, Dave in Oxford, Dean, I knew Brad when he hung around the band room after school on purpose. Jason Bilski, who pointed out that this is a rare song with three apostrophes in the title. Rock the Good Ag, Duck Guy Girl, <laughs> Matt Stamps Regal from North Carolina, Stony Stitt, Bernie the Dutch Oven Lindemann from Cindy, Australia. Are you guys getting tired of this? I am. Chris the 80s Queen <laughs> in Massachusetts, Vince in Pennsylvania, Mike from Maryland, Joe the Wanderer, Firefighter Mark in Los Angeles, and Dave Dirt, who writes... Hey guys, so I'm sure you've heard from multiple sources by now that Ain't Talking About Love was from Van Halen's 1978 debut. Lest you incur the wrath of all the, that's not the 80s moron people, you could cover your ass by saying you were using part of Two Live Crew's 1989 song, The Shop, which samples that very riff. So there's that. Okay, Lexi, it's your turn to uh, spin the wheel and find out who the winner is this week. Okay, uh, here we go. From... uh the wilds of Cape Cod, I am doing this. <laughs> Heard ya. Yeah, no kidding. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> okay, looks like it's going to land on. Sean Fitzgerald, you are this week's winner. So uh, email us your postal address. And we'll, oh, you actually get a choice, right, Brad? Oh, yep, you're right. No one has no one has claimed the T-shirt yet. So if you're interested in a size large, Hollenotes H2O Tour concert shirt that was gifted to our listener Chase Squires by none other than MTV VJ Alan Hunter, you could choose that. Hey, we're gonna let our guest of honor, Lexi, pick this week's uh, mystery tune. Here we go. If you know it, email us at podcast at sites.com and tune in in a couple weeks to find out if you're a winner. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Kids play a lot more than anyone. Kids get hot more than anyone. Hey, who is for a kid's big burst. Kids are having fun more than anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids are on the run more than anyone. Whoa. Whoa. 
love it. Kool-Aid brand soft drink mix. Kool-Aid is for a kid's big birthday. It goes so fast when you want to go fast, when you want to go slower. It goes so fast when you want to go fast, when you want to slow down. Yeah, it goes so fast when you're trying to keep up, pushing you back and it's never enough. It's so fast when you're watching we're back and we have just a few more minutes and alexi i wanted to ask you a couple more questions people may not realize this but you are also a musician and i know you have a new album out this summer what can you tell us about that i do so i've been doing music uh even before i was kicking a ball and look i recognize i am in a long line of uh athletes and actors that have uh put out music and kind of done these vanity type of situations i recognize just in order for it to even be good, it has to be really good. But this is something that I've done a long time and uh, something I take as seriously. I, it's something that I love to do. Uh, I've been writing and recording and performing all my life, and I continue to do so. So new album is out. It's called uh, Look at You, and you can find it on all the different platforms out there. I'm in that whole 70s mode where... I put out an album almost every single year. I know that's not what people uh, did, certainly not in the 80s and, and, and later on. But the whole discography if, uh, for all three people out there, including my mom that want to check it out, it's on Spotify and iTunes and all the different platforms out there. It's pop rock. As I said, you know, despite the fact that I was talking about Skid Row today on the, on the pod, it's, it's much more... Uh, just straight ahead pop rock in the Rick Springfield type of vein and, and just stuff that you can put in your car, crank up, put the windows down and, uh, and enjoy. So hope people out there uh, like it and hope uh, 80s Nation out there checks it out. Well, I'll tell you what, 80s Nation, I'm going to share a playlist with all three of these albums that we discussed, but I will throw Alexi's new album in there as well. So you can enjoy that after you finish listening to our picks. Alexi, what got you started playing guitar? So I grew up, uh, as I said, in Detroit, and the laws are that you have to play hockey, which I played a lot of, and, and soccer came into my life. I grew up going back and forth between Detroit and Athens, Greece, and I was involved in bands from an early age, garage bands and everything, so playing school functions and clubs and different stuff, and it's always just been a, a, a huge part of, of everything that I've done. Uh, for those that are out there that have music in their life, it, it does, you can try to get rid of it, but you'll never ever get rid of it. It will at times lay, lay dormant, but it's something that's kept me sane over the years, something that uh, over the years I've, I've taken as seriously as anything that I've done, but it's a, it, it's, it's a joy to have it in my life, to have music. I love talking about music. I love playing music. I love writing music. And I am in, I'm in search, a perpetual search for the perfect pop song. I haven't found it yet, but uh, hope springs eternal, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Lexi, we have a tradition here at Stuck in the 80s when we, have, when we have a special guest. We always like to ask what we call the podcast time machine question. So we're going to pose it to you. Okay. We're going to offer you a seat on our time machine. You can use it to go back to the 80s to change one event of your life or to witness it or to give yourself, the younger version of yourself, some advice. So what would you use the podcast time machine seat for? Oh, besides that girl back in the 80s. No, I, um, let me think. Uh, <laughs> perfectly valid. Perfectly valid use. No, I mean, look, I, I, will, I will never forget the moment. You know, I said that my first concert was Pat Benatar, Crimes of Passion Tour, but I was really young. I was 12 or something. But the first concert that I ever drove to and got tickets to, bought tickets to, was a, a concert in Cobo Hall, uh, I think. And walking into Cobo Hall and seeing, at that point, it was, uh, I think it was the Slippery One Wet Tour, and seeing at that point, Cinderella was on stage and what that meant. I would love to be able to relive just that moment of when you're out in the light of the concourse and walking in, and this applies to any band or any, any, any moment, but that moment when you first have that oh, experience, I would love to be able to go back and, and relive that. I don't, I don't necessarily think that I, would, that I would change anything about it, but to be able to be there at that time when I was, I don't know, 15, 16 years old and to walk in there and to see what I saw, to smell what I saw and to just that, that whole world. Maybe, you know, when, when you saw that movie, 
almost famous, there was that type of feeling and that moment of you're in there, something special. Uh, we all have that at different times and in different, different situations, but I'd love to be able to relive that. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Lexi, for coming on the show and daring to throw down your 80s knowledge and your hair metal cred. It's been great having you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you guys so much for having me. I just I, I want to say, it's a, as I said at the beginning of the show, it's an absolute privilege and a pleasure to, to come on this show that has provided me, and, and I know so many people out there, I don't want to speak from, for them, but I will, so many people out there that you know, but a lot of people that you don't know that are out there that are listening on a continual basis and just love not just the content, but the stories, and as I said, the, the, the personalities behind it. And, you know, Steve... Keep fighting the good fight, my, my friend. You are loved by a lot of people out there for who you are, even from afar. And don't you ever forget that. Uh, and Brad, you know, I've gotten to know you uh, over the last couple of years. And this, what, what you are doing here, while it might seem just, you know, whatever, not stupid, but mundane and everything like that. No, you guys, are, you guys are doing something that's really, really cool, and it's fun. And I know sometimes being in the podcasting world, you kind of put it out there and you don't know where it's going, but I, I like to think that, and I hope that you guys see that you're touching a lot of people out there with the entertainment that you're providing, the content that you're providing, and just the, just the fun that you're providing, because this is a fun podcast, and I hope that it never goes away. I know it's going to change and meander, as it often does, but that's you know, part of the deal with, uh, with being, doing this for so long. So it's been a real, real privilege and one of the high points of my life to be able to come on this show and talk to you guys it's been fun going back 30 years with you alexi in the meantime brad and i will be right here hopelessly stuck in the 80s so i would choose to be with you that's if the choice were mine to make but you can make decisions too Stuck in the 80s is a member of the CLNS Media Network. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or the CLNS Media mobile app.